All right. Well, open your Bibles, if you have them, Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. Um, we're continuing to take a look at the first of the minor prophets, Hosea. Uh, Hosea lived during the 8th century B.C., a unique time in Israel's history when the kingdom of Israel was divided in two. You had the northern kingdom of Israel that consisted of the northern ten tribes, and then you had the southern kingdom of Judah that consisted of Judah and Benjamin, named after the larger tribe of Judah. But Hosea's ministry was primarily to the northern kingdom. You may be familiar with the prophet Isaiah. He is actually a contemporary of Hosea, and he ministered to the southern kingdom of Judah. But when we're introduced to Hosea in verse 1 of chapter 1, we learn that he began his ministry under King Jeroboam II. King Jeroboam ruled over a time in Israel's history during the 8th century when uh, the kingdom of Israel was prosperous, it was peaceful, because of the military campaigns of Jeroboam II, the boundaries of Israel were pushed out and began to grow. And so you can imagine in this time of Israel's history when there's peace and prosperity, they could never imagine, as we might never imagine, if we're prosperous, if we're experiencing peace in our nation, that in just 30 years or so, at the beginning of Hosea's ministry, uh, judgment of God is going to come. The Assyrians are going to come in 722 BC, and they're going to exile the nation, the northern kingdom of Israel. And so while this was an economically prosperous time, it was a time of spiritual poverty. And we know in our text the reason Hosea receives the word of the Lord is to confront their spiritual infidelity. This is a nation who has turned their backs upon God who has provided them everything they need. He's given them the land that they've inherited. He's provided clothes on their back. He's given them roofs over their head. He's provided them the covenant with him. If they obey him, that they'll be blessed. But if they disobey him, they'll be cursed. And they turn their back upon the one true God, Yahweh, and begin to worship the gods of the surrounding nations. And the book of Hosea is the word of the Lord that's spoken through this prophet of God who confronts their sin. If you get to read about some of the prophets, some of the prophets you hear about in, when you, in regards to their, the background of their story, you'd be like, I don't know if I would want to be the prophet Jeremiah and minister to the people who he ministered to, or Ezekiel. But when you hear about what happened to Hosea, a lot of us would say, whoa, I would not want to be Hosea. In verse 2 of chapter 1, we learn that Hosea, as he's to confront the children of Israel, he would do it not just with the word that he would declare, but with the life that he would live. And if you recall, Hosea was commanded to take a wife of harlotry, to have children of harlotry. In other words, take an adulterous wife, a woman who will prostitute herself out after you are married to her and then have children of unfaithfulness. Some of your children, you won't know if they are yours because of the nature of her promiscuity. And so Hosea is given a unique command to go and take an adulterous wife, have adulterous children. Why? Because God wants to use Hosea's life and his marriage and his family as an object lesson to teach Israel about his faithfulness in the midst of her infidelity. 
God wants the nation of Israel to, to know that how a faithful husband feels about his unfaithful wife whom he loves and cares for, the way that Gomer hurts the heart of Hosea, God says, that's the way you hurt me, and yet my love is relentless. My love is pursuing you regardless of what you've gone through. And the book of Hosea is really a love story. Well, God goes on in chapter one, having given him this command to declare coming judgment. But I want you to know, coming judgment, its purpose is not to destroy the people altogether, but to discipline them. And so God instructs Hosea to name his three children, if you were with us last time. Jezreel speaks of the coming judgment in which Jezreel literally means to, to scatter the people. And so the Syrians are going to come in 722 BC and they're going to be scattered. The second child is a daughter. Her name is Loruhama. That means not loved, no mercy. And then the third child is, is Loami, which means not my child. And so God declaring his rejection of Israel because of her spiritual infidelity says, no more love and you are not my children. But as, as he declares Coming judgment, he doesn't do so without declaring and promising future restoration. And at the end of chapter one, which is an amazing thing to consider, that although coming judgment is certain, he says those who were once under the judgment of God and who were scattered, God says in the end of chapter one, I'm going to bring the northern and southern kingdoms together again. And they're going to have one ruler. And Jezreel, was, which was once associated with judgment is going to be now associated with greatness and the day of Jezreel will be great. He says, those people I said who are, you are not my people, you are not loved, his love is going to be restored and they are once again going to be called sons of the living God. Well, God, as he confronted them in chapter one, continues to confront them in chapter two and we're going to read about the continued faithfulness of God in the face of the unfaithfulness of the children of Israel. Let's go ahead and read it. Chapter two, we'll be reading all 23 verses. Well, at least pick up verse two all the way to verse 23. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges. For she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children for they are children of harlotry for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold... I will hedge up your way with thorns. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her path. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband. And then it was, for then it was better for me than now, for she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time. My, and my new wine in its season, and will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of the, her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, 
her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts, and I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry, and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. Verse 14, therefore behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master, for I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant for them with beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord It shall come to pass in that day I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer with grain, with new wine and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people and they shall say you are my God. The word of the Lord. Uh, as we walk through this incredible prophet of, or hear the word of the Lord through the prophet Hosea, we get to hear the most magnificent of love stories. Uh, obviously, the greatest love story of all is, is God's redemptive plan for humanity, and we see it fully on display as he demonstrates his faithfulness, his love for a people who have participated in spiritual infidelity against him. And this is a beautiful love story that we get to read about. And it really captures the heart of God. And God, in his love for the nation, in his faithfulness to the nation, doesn't leave her as she is, but he confronts her sin. And how does he continue to confront the nation? In our text, in verses 1 to 5, at least the first half of verse 5, he calls her to repentance. He loves her enough to confront her in her sin and call her to repentance. And he begins by giving a command, by calling upon the children who are metaphorical, figurative in this sense, to to bring a charge against their mother. He says in verse 2, bring a charge against your mother, bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her Husband. In other words, he tells the children who possibly could be here, the, the individuals who make up the nation, bring a formal charge against your mother, which is figuratively speaking of the nation as a whole. Let me remind you, in the book of Hosea, God pictures himself as a faithful husband. He pictures Israel as an unfaithful wife who has participated in adultery. And he he says to the children, bring a charge against her. Why does he need to bring a charge? So that she knows what she needs to repent from. Her spiritual infidelity. As we said earlier, the children of Israel were given everything by God. The land, the clothes on their back, the, the relationship with God. 
Unlike any other nation, the nation of Israel was set apart and received the covenant of the Lord, and now she's turned her backs, her back upon the one true God and is given credit for all of the prosperity and all of the peace that she has received. She gives credit to the false gods of the surrounding nations, and God says, bring a formal charge against her. You know, it's a reminder, if you're going to take your first step towards repentance, if you're going to get right in a relationship with God, that first step begins with being able to name your sin. You know, the problem with sin is the fact, not just that it misses the mark and falls short, but it's a it's an offense against a holy God. And when we can define sin for what it is against a holy God, that's a great place to begin when it comes to turning back to the Lord, turning our back on sin and turning towards God, turning our back towards the the sin we walked in and experiencing the consequences of them and, and then pursuing a holy God And so he says, bring a charge against your mother. Secondly, he declares the severance, the marriage has been severed because of the spiritual infidelity. He declares in verse 2, you are not my wife and I am not your husband. Now, if you read verse 2 in isolation, you might think, whew, sounds like God is providing a certificate of divorce to the nation of Israel. And Yet, if you take a look at it in the greater context of chapter 1 and 2 and and throughout the the book, you learn that, that God, the reason why he says this is so that she can see the seriousness of her sin. And because of her spiritual infidelity, what God could do because he is a just God is he could destroy her and judge her completely. But the Lord doesn't simply want to destroy her. He wants to discipline her. God's heart is that he would draw their heart back to him. And that's the heart of God. So God, he says, you're not my wife. I'm not your husband. Our marital covenant has been broken by your spiritual infidelity, but nevertheless, I'm still going to pursue you. Nevertheless, coming judgment is going to come and that will discipline you and put you into a desperate position where you will finally no longer have prosperity and peace so that you can only focus on me and my word and then I can draw you back to myself. And so God makes this declaration. The marriage has been severed. See the seriousness of your sin. Listen, the children of Israel are in a state of spiritual slumber. They're prosperous. The land is peaceful under Jeroboam II. They could never have imagined that the Assyrians would ever come in and destroy them. And yet in their spiritual infidelity through the prophet Hosea, God confronts them with their sin and the seriousness of it. He continues on in the verse and says, um, let her put away her harlotries from her sight. What does she need to turn from? She needs to turn from her harlotries. This is speaking of her adulterous lifestyle. Listen, as the nation of Israel is compared to Gomer, Hosea's wife, she has not just committed adultery once, she has done it again and again and again. The nation of Israel hasn't just worshipped Baal and participated in the 
the pagan rituals in which you'd go to the temple and you would sleep with the temple prostitutes. They were male prostitutes, you had female prostitutes, and as a means of appeasing the surrounding nation's gods like Baal, you would go and sleep with the temple prostitutes, burn incense to them, take the, pro- the, the, the blessings that God had given you with grain and blessing in the land, and then worship a false god with it. And God basically says, turn from your adulterous lifestyle. Turn from it and turn back to me. He goes on to say to turn from your sexually, sexual immoral behavior. He says, and, and her adulteries. Let her put away her harlotries and her adulteries from between her breasts. We're, we're possibly talking about her jewelry in which she seeks to attract her lovers or possibly her cosmetics. And she's pursuing these false gods instead of the one true God. And God says, Put that away, turn from it, turn back to me. They were not just figuratively committing adultery and participating in sexual immorality. They were doing it literally because they were going to the temple prostitutes and sleeping with them in order to appease these false gods. And God says, turn your back from that sin. And so as we see the seriousness of sin and and we consider the the fact that this is a sin against God who considers the nation of Israel to be his wife, a faithful God, a holy God, a, a loving God, he calls her to repentance by asking her to consider the consequences of her sin. If you don't turn your back on this adultery in which you, spiritual adultery of worshiping other gods, he says, I'll strip you naked and expose her as in the day she was born. In other words, he says, I'm going to make her an object of uh, um, humiliation and an object of ridicule. Listen, what God is saying here is, if you want to live independently of me, who is the one who provided prosperity and peace, go ahead and try and see what life is like without me. He says, you know, you know the clothes that I put on your back, the wool and the linen and, and the, the, the provisions that I made? He says, go ahead and try life without me and see what it's going to be like without the clothes on your back. Consider when there is no longer peace in the land. Consider when there is no prosperity because you have attributed it to the false gods. And God says, if you don't turn back to me, I will take away the provisions, the prosperity, and the peace, and you'll be left with nothing so that you'll come back to me. So God doesn't just want to take it away and destroy them. He wants to bring them to a place of complete misery, to remember the days in which they served the one true God. And so he says, lest I I strip her naked and I expose her as in the day she was born. And, And then he says, and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. Not only am I going to remove those provisions, but I'm going to take away her vitality. You know, the land as it produces agriculturally, I mean, when it comes to the agricultural prosperity, the nation was blessed. Fertile in that capacity. And when you take a look at Baal, he was actually the, the Canaanite storm god and the, and the fertility god. And so if you needed, in terms of fertility of agriculture, or if you wanted children, you would go and worship Baal, the, 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 the fertility god. And what God is saying, I'm going to take all that away. And you're going to get to a place where you realize when you call upon the false gods, they don't answer. And so he's bringing them to a place of just complete desperation until, they get, until he gets their attention and he draws them back 
to himself. Verse four, I will not have mercy on her children for they are the children of harlotry. Basically saying I'm gonna disown the, ch- the children. They are not mine. Uh, they are children of, of unfaithfulness for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. And so he goes and he says, I'm going to take away my mercy from her. How long? For a time. In order to draw her back to himself so that she experiences the consequences of her sin, finds the misery of what it's like to live in isolation from God in order that he might later allure them while they're in the wilderness. When, they, when he has their undivided attention and draw them back to himself. God confronts his people first by calling them to repentance in these first five verses. Um, if I could give us just a few takeaways, my question as I'm reading this text is, what does it tell us about God? What does it reveal about the God that we worship and, and serve? We're not part of the nation of Israel today, but we are the bride of Christ if we have trusted in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. What does this text tell us about the one true God? Number one, God calls us, uh, God calls his people to repentance, number one, because he's holy. To be holy means to be set apart. And our first step, if we're ever going to repent of our sin, is to have a proper understanding of who God is. He's holy. Holy means set apart. It means that there's no one like our God. Now, he's set apart in a number of ways. He's set apart as creator. He's set apart as eternal but he's also set apart as righteous. There's no one like God in heaven and earth or anywhere else. He is perfectly righteous. And because he is holy and because he, 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 he loves us and wants a relationship with us, our next step would be to say, God, how can I be holy as you are holy? And ultimately, we know how that solution is brought only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that ultimately is fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. And many of the, 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 the blessings that will come in the future restoration will be experienced in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But the first thing is we're reminded that God is a very holy God. And because he's holy, I often say this, we cannot condone what God condemns. And God condemns sin. Anytime we fall short, miss the mark, anytime our minds, our hearts, our lives, our relationships, anything is out of alignment with God and his word, that's called sin, and it's a sin against a holy God. The question we sometimes ask ourselves is, who am I in the narrative? We're the unfaithful nation of Israel. We're the unfaithful wife, Gomer, whom God pursues again and again and again with a love that is relentless, who calls us back to himself. And we're reminded because he is holy, we've called, been called to be holy as well. We, we live in a culture that calls us to compromise, but you can't compromise sin. So first, God calls his people to repentance because he's holy. Secondly, God calls his people to repentance because he is faithful. Notice there, as we've said before, the purpose is not destruction. God doesn't want to wipe out his people altogether, say, I'm done with Israel, forget them. No, he's going to bring judgment, but the purpose is discipline. He's faithful to make promises and keep promises. 
Now, God made a covenant with them, and you can hear about the covenant um, um, promises uh, in terms of both the curses and the blessings in Deuteronomy 28. God said, as you enter into the promised land, if you obey me, you'll be blessed, you'll be prosperous. But if you disobey me, the curse of judgment will become and you will ultimately be vomited out of the land. But God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three, where he promised Abraham land, seed, and blessing. That all the nations that blessed Israel would be blessed. And ultimately that would come to the fulfillment of the person work of Jesus Christ. But God remains faithful to that promise and faithful to his people. Even when the nation as a whole seems as if they have left God. And God declares, I'm not your husband and you are not my wife. God is still going to plan a future restoration. So God's call to repentance reminds us he's holy. Reminds us he's faithful the, the reason why we have a relationship with God is not because we were faithful, but because he's faithful. And because of his faithfulness, because of the spirit he provides us, we can then be faithful as well. Thirdly, God calls his people to repentance because of his love. And if God loves us so much that he doesn't leave us the way we are, should not we love him more than we love the world? Uh, the question is, how do we express our unfaithfulness to God when we love the world more than we love him? That's when we fall short of the kind of love that he is deserving of, the kind of love he is worthy of. Let me read to you some scriptures on that. First John two fifteen to 17. Do not love the, the world or the things of the world. If God loves you with this unconditional, relentless love, should we not... Say no to the world and the love of it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is how we practice unfaithfulness before God. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. James 4, 1 through 4 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, it's familiar language. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When do we participate in spiritual adultery against our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ? Well, when we love the world, when we give into the desires of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And how many times, not just this past year or this past week or this past month, but how many times today were we unfaithful to God and yet his love continues to relentlessly pursue us. And he's continuing to do a work in us. Doesn't it make you fully appreciate the goodness of our God? And so knowing that the people, many of them who hear this message are not going to repent, judgment is going to come, and it does come in 722 BC through the Assyrians. Let me ask this question. If God calls his people to repentance back then and today, what would motivate some to refuse? When you read God's word and you say, whoa, my thoughts are out of alignment with his word. My life is out of alignment with his word. What causes even believers to 
walk away and refuse to align with him. What's the cause of that? Why did the nation do that? Money? Sure. And the love of money can take your eyes off of, off of the Lord. Yeah. Anything else? What causes you to refuse repentance? Distractions of sorts? Sure, sure. Well, I watch the news. It makes me a little bit anxious. makes me... Uh, maybe not worried sometimes, but just on fire, depending on what news cycle you're watching. Yeah, yeah, that can get you distracted. What, what keeps us from repentance, genuine repentance? Yeah, Charlie. In unwillingness? Oh, yeah, yeah. So seeing sin as it is, I'm hearing, and um, the consequences it brings, brings discomfort and ultimate destruction, Harold. Yeah. So pride will get in the way of it. Um, I think one of the ways pride gets in the way of it is, is not calling my sin, sin. Compared to other people, you know, this is just... You know, miss, missing, you know, that standard. But me, is that really sin? I think sometimes we don't call it sin. Pride can definitely hinder that. How about you personally? I mean, what gets in the way of your repentance? Why don't people, re- why did Israel not repent? Yeah. Sure. So, you, I mean, you're pursuing purity and it just seems like you fall short again and again in terms of walking consistently with God's word. Yeah, and living a life that honors him. And Yeah. Um, Thomas Watson once said, if, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. I'd like to suggest the reason we don't walk in repentance is because sin is just too sweet. And Charlie had mentioned uh, sin should bring a discomfort, but sin is pleasurable for a time for a moment, but until we truly hate our sin, will we ever really taste the sweetness and the goodness of the one who redeemed us, who saved us, and provides us the power to say no to sin? Until we taste the bitterness of the consequence of sin, will we ever truly be able to turn to Christ and truly trust in him as our Savior and our Lord? And truly, we tend to love our sin more than we love our God. I think anxiety, if we can use that one as, as one, uh, we mentioned the news earlier. You know, you watch the news and anxiety gives me some sense of control over things even though it doesn't really do that. But when I'm anxious, when I'm worried, I'm not trusting God. I'm trying to deal with it myself, trying to find a solution elsewhere. But when you come to Christ, right, who is described as our bridegroom, in the New Testament. We are saying no to our old lifestyle. We're saying no to sin and we're following after Jesus, right? Can you imagine uh, if I, I remember when I um, um, proposed to my wife. I remember I was in Dallas at the time 
And I got on one knee and I presented her the ring and I said, will you marry me? Can you imagine if I told her, will you marry me? And I said, wait, hold on before you answer. I just want you to know that back in high school, I was dating a gal and I just want you to know most of the year you're mine, but a few nights out of the year, I want to be with her. And then in college, one more thing, I, I, I had dated another gal and I was hoping that I could spend some time with her during the year. You get like 90 5% of my, my fidelity, every, you know, all of that. I just need 5%. What would, what would a good what, a wife-to-be tell you? She'd get lost, dude. Forget you. You can't be fully 100% faithful to me. And yet when we come to Christ, we say, I'm all in, God. When you marry your spouse, you are saying no to every other man or woman on the earth. And you're saying to your husband or wife, you are my only one. I'm going to love you. I'm going to cherish you. My eyes shouldn't be wandering anywhere else. You are the object of my desire. And yet if we don't give God our whole heart at the beginning, what makes us think, hey, we can give God, you know, 95%. Lord, I gave you 95% of my time this week. He says, I want 100%. When he, we come to our service, when it comes to our, our money, you know, like, oh, God just wants a tithe, you know, he just wants 10%. No, God says, I want control over all of it. I'm the Lord of your life. You consult me about every financial decision. If the Lord is truly Lord of our life, we say, God, you have complete control. If there's a thought out of alignment, if there's an action out of alignment, if there's a relationship out of alignment, I am not my own I am not my own God. I'm going to step off of the throne. And so I asked the question in terms of, of um, if God calls us to repentance, what motivates some to refuse? But, but what motivates us to obey Christ? Our love for him. When we are so fully impressed by who Jesus is and what he's done for us, the, the sacrifice that he's made on our behalf, we don't say, I have to obey you. I say, I want to, Lord. I hate my sin. I hate the consequences. I hate going back to it again and again and again. Help me see the beauty of Christ. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Help me taste the sweetness of a personal relationship with Jesus. God in his love for the nation of Israel, he calls them to repentance. Secondly, he, he, he declares coming judgment. He declares coming judgment. And he gives the reason why. In the second half of verse 5, he says, she says this, um, for she said, I will go after my lovers. God's provided everything for her. He's the faithful husband. He's given her the land. He's given her the clothes. He gives her the prosperity and peace. And yet she says, I'll go after other lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. You know what God is telling them the reason why judgment is coming is because of their ingratitude and their idolatry. They have attributed their prosperity and peace to the gods of the surrounding nations and used the blessings of God to worship the false gods of the surrounding nations. Now, maybe most of us don't worship a god named Baal today. You don't have idols that you hide in your closet somewhere or that you worship on the side. But who do you attribute your success to other than God? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I tend to look to myself. The man in the mirror. 
the reason I'm successful, the reason I've got money in the bank, the reason why I got the job that I've got, the reason why my family's as blessed as it is, is because of my hard work, is because of what I've done. And the reality is, says God says, get off your high horse, step off the throne and recognize that every good thing is from the Lord. And we tend to step onto that and say, no, I've, I'm the hard worker. And God says, no, that's me. And we become unfaithful when we don't give God credit where credit is due. The month of November is an opportunity to tell God, thank you. But why don't we express that gratitude all throughout the year? The significance of Thanksgiving is not just what we are thankful for, but who we are thankful too. A lot of people around this time there, I'm thankful for this, 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 and this. Who cares? I'm thankful to the God who provided it all. Let's look to him. And so he calls out them in this manner. And continues verse six, and he says, therefore behold, what is God going to do? How is he going to bring judgment? He says, I'm not going to destroy her, I'm gonna discipline her. I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in. I'm going to set up a barrier that will keep her from the path that will lead her to her lovers. I'm going to make it impossible for her to make it to these false gods in worship to them. So I'm going to hedge up her way. I'm going to put thorns in her path. How is he going to do that? He's going to, he's going to exile them. He's going to take them out of the land. He says, I'm going to put up a wall. And verse 7, it says, she will chase her lovers but not overtake them. This is the love of God. Um, Hosea is, is a book that, that may be difficult to, to grasp, but for those who have been hurt because of an unfaithful spouse, they can understand how difficult this could possibly be for the person who's been hurt to continue to pursue and love the one who has hurt them in the deepest way possible. And yet God says, I'm going to pursue this unfaithful wife. I'm going to set up a hedge. I'm going to make it impossible for her to get there. She's going to pursue them. She won't overtake them. Yes, she will seek them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go to return to my own husband. In other words, God says, I'm going to make her so desperate, so miserable, that she'll remember the days when she worshiped me the provider, the sustainer, the one who set up a covenant promises with her. Go back to my word. Go back to my love letters and read the truths of the word so desperate that she will finally come to her senses and come back to me. What a relentless love that is. For then it was better for me than now. Verse eight, for she did not know that I gave her grain. Was it that she did not know or did she not acknowledge it? She didn't acknowledge it. She didn't express gratitude and thanksgiving to the God who provided it. That I gave her gray new wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold which they prepared for Baal. So they took the, the luxury items, they took the gold and the silver, they took the prosperity and they worshiped false gods with what I gave them. You know, I was thinking about how does that apply to us today, you know? It's a reminder God's given us everything, our house, our car, our computer, our everything we own, it's his. And, and the question is, are we glorifying God with it? Like in our home, 
It's not ours. Whether you got a mortgage or rent it, you paid off your house altogether, you are just a steward of what God has provided you. Are you using it to honor and glorify him or are you using it just for your own pleasures, your own desires and do what you wish with it? It's like God says, this is all from me. I own everything and we're to glorify God with everything. Verse nine, therefore I will return and take it away. My grain in its time and my new wine and it sees, I'm taking it all. I'm going to leave you with nothing and will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. In other words, she's going to be exposed. She's going to find herself in a place of desperation and she won't be able to look to anyone but me. Then it says, now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers in the sight of the false gods that she has turned to again and again. And then it says in verse 10, don't miss this, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. You know those false gods that she's been worshiping and serving, they're false gods. And when she cries out to them for help finally, she'll have no one to save her. And then she'll remember the Lord. Verse 11, I will also cause her mirth to cease, her feast days, new moons, her Sabbaths, all the appointed feasts. No more celebrations. You know, they've got their rituals still. They've got their feasts still. They're going through the motions, but their hearts are far from God. And we're reminded again and again in Scripture, God doesn't want your religion if he doesn't have your heart first, if he doesn't have a relationship. He wants our hearts. Verse 12, and I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, her fertility of which she said, these are my wages that my lovers have given me. Oh, she gives it all credit to these false gods. So I will take them, so I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall eat them. You gotta pay attention to these details because when we get to the restoration part, everything gets reversed. These beasts right here are those who are destroying the fertility of the land and the prosperity of the land, of agriculture. And God is going to say those things will not happen anymore later. I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She decked herself out with earrings and and jewelry. That's how she attracted her lovers and went after her lovers. But me, what a sad word this is, but me, she forgot. This is a call for us. Do not forget the Lord and what he has given to each one of us. Do not forget the blessings he provided us. The greatest blessing of all is our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not forget. Let us not forget that every blessing, every provision is from him. We live in a prosperous nation, whether you realize it or not. Uh, in terms of peace, and you take a look at the things going on around the world, we are blessed beyond measure. Recognize who is the provider of all these things. Let us not forget the Lord. And may Thanksgiving, the month of November, be a helpful reminder to us to give thanks. To give thanks to our God who has provided us all things. And so God confronts them by means of warning them about coming judgment. As we said earlier, what does this tell us about God? Well, the warning about coming judgment reminds us that God is holy. He is a holy God set apart, and he will not look upon sin and do nothing. You may think that, oh, God is not going to judge us. You talk to people in the world and tell them, 
Uh, one day, the world as it is is going to come to an end. Jesus is coming back again, and you've got scoffers out there who will laugh at you. You, you tell them that, that there's going to come a day when Jesus Christ comes back. The next event on the prophetic calendar, you, you've got the rapture, but after that, you have seven years of the great tribulation when the judgment of God will be poured out upon the earth. Do not mistake God's patience for something else. In his patience, we are to prepare and be reminded he is holy. God warns us about coming judgment because he is faithful. The reason he brings this judgment is not to destroy them, but to discipline them, is to redeem them. It's to bring them to a place of misery and desperation so that he can finally have their undivided attention and win them back to himself. And then thirdly, God warns us about coming judgment because of his love that is relentless, that is unconditional. Aren't you thankful for the love of God and how he loves us the way he does? Can I ask this? How can we pray strategically for prodigals? Those who have wandered from the faith, those who have turned their backs on God, knowing the redemptive nature of of our God, how can we pray strategically for prodigals? Yeah. So that they hit rock bottom. They see what life without God is like. And they have no one else to grab but the rock. When you hit rock bottom, there's no thing else you can grab but the rock of Jesus Christ. That's so good. Yeah. Anything else? How can we, else we can we pray strategically? Yeah. Yeah. So praying that God would remove the barriers that get in the way of Him. Yeah. Anything else strategically, even in our text? One of those I was thinking is God would hedge up their path, like. You know those, those paths towards their, their sin of choice, their drug of choice, that sort of thing? Whatever their desire is, God would make it impossible to get there. God, God gave them a car, say, Lord, they don't need a car. Lord, take that car away, you know? Anything that's hindering them from doing your will. And sometimes it's good to pray, Lord, they don't need a car right now. They just need to find you in a place of desperation. Yeah, anything else? Any, anyone praying for prodigals? What, what do you pray for, for your prodigal? Yeah, that God would turn their heart to him. God is the one who's going to work in there and draw them back to himself. Yeah, anything else? Yeah. Yeah, so put the right people who are going to be the right influence and I guess on the other side of it, Janine, taking out the other side, which is the wrong influences. Yeah, so good. Yeah, Harold. Oh, yeah. Yeah, see the, the wickedness of sin and its consequences and just hate it, certainly. Anything else? We can be praying for our prodigals. I think not just praying for our prodigals, praying for our own hearts. You ever find yourself, you know, just in a, in, in going the wrong direction, you know, whether it's not trusting the Lord or uh, living 
in a way or thinking in a way that's outside of his will and just saying, Lord, draw me back to yourself. Give me a heart to love you. Let me taste the sweetness of Christ again because I feel like I'm just going through the motions. Anyone been there? You know, you're just going through the motions and you're like, Lord, I, I want to return to my first love. I want to pursue you like I did at the beginning and love you and experience a genuine walk with you and just go back to him again and again. And so God, he confronts them by means of calling them to repentance, declaring future judgment. But what a beautiful book as God declares future restoration. They're going to experience difficult days ahead. I can imagine after the Assyrians come in and they end up in their exile that there are times throughout the history of Israel where they go back to the book of Hosea and all that they can do is hold on to the promises of God. Yes, judgment is certain and God keeps his promises towards that, but there is future restoration. I want you to hear God's heart as we continue to read in verse 14. He says, therefore, Behold, listen, judgment is coming, but the word behold is take a look at the future restoration of our God. Open your eyes to see the goodness of our God, the love of our God, and the faithfulness of our God. Behold, whenever you see that word behold, it's an invitation of worship. You know, when we come on Sunday mornings and gather together and sing those lyrics, we're not just going through the motions, Lord willing, but we're declaring the greatness of our God as we behold him as we behold the work of Christ on the cross, as we behold what he's done for us, having our sins forgiven and providing us everlasting life. Therefore, behold, what is God doing? He says, I will allure her. This is not just persuade her. It's in the context of romance and seduction. God is saying, I'm going to allure. I'm going to win her back. I'm going to pursue her with an unconditional love. If anyone has been hurt by an unfaithful partner, an unfaithful spouse, you can capture the love of God in this because God is pursuing that spouse who in this context is Israel despite all the ways that she has hurt him again and again and again and again. And it makes us appreciate God and his love for us, even when we sin against him again and again and again and again. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness. The wilderness is, is no longer in the context of judgment, but blessing now. I'm going to take her to a place of solitude where she has no more distractions, where she has no more access to her lovers, where she can't go to the temple prostitutes and continue to worship the Baals or burn incense to, him, to them. I've taken away everything. I've, I've stripped away her prosperity and her peace. She has no nation. She has been scattered among the nations, and I'm going to draw her back to the wilderness and speak comfort to her. God says, I'm going to speak softly to her and gently to her and draw her heart back to him. One of the ways we talked about how do you, how do you pray for a prodigal that, that God would draw their heart back to the Lord. And here we get a picture of that. God calls the nation into the wilderness and speaks words of comfort and words of restoration. Verse 15, I will give her 
vineyards from there. They're going to go back into the land of Israel and where there was once no fertility in the land agriculturally, now there is prosperity again and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. The valley of Achor, when the children of Israel were entering into the promised land, um, there was a guy by the name of Achan when they were going through Jericho and they weren't supposed to keep anything, but Achan took a bunch of stuff with him and he says, I'm keeping this for myself and God judges them there. This will not be a place associated with judgment. God says the valley of Achor is going to be a door of hope. God is almost attaching this to the, to the time when they were wandering in the wilderness as he was preparing for them to enter into the promised land that he was going to, to provide them. It's almost like he, he's winning them back to himself. He loves Israel unconditionally. She shall sing there. The joy of the Lord shall return. You remember all the feasts and the festivals and all the, the, the times of celebration that were taken away? They'll be restored and she'll be singing a song. There's something beautiful about worship when we realize how lost we were without God and how blessed we are now with him where we begin to sing his praises. That's true worship. When we reflect on the depth of our depravity and the, the, the desperation of our sin and how Christ drew us back to himself, that we can really sing songs of worship. And in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt, just like at the beginning, I'm going to win her back to myself. For any of those who are married in the room, remember when you pursued your partner? Oh, boy. You spoke sweet things to them. You wrote them little notes, letters. You, you took them out and planned different dates and had the exciting things happening. And, and, and you won their heart to yourself. And, and this is what God's saying. After all that Israel's done to him, he's going to win her back as in youth. Verse 16, And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband. And no longer call me my master. What did God say earlier? You're not my wife and I'm not your husband. But now the marriage has been restored. What an amazing God we serve. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals. You know her past lovers. She will not remember them anymore. And they shall be remembered by their name no more. And that day I will make a covenant for them with beasts of the field, with the birds of the air. Remember earlier, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air are destroying the fertility of the agriculture. Well, now God's made a covenant with them and now the land's going to be blessed. There is a reversal Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth. You know, the, the means of, of warfare are going to be destroyed. You got no bows, you got no arrows, you can't fight. There's peace in the land to make them lie down safely. Verse 19, God is going to betroth them. He's going to make a promise to them. He's going to do, it's almost like, he, same at the beginning, it, there's a fresh start again. And God says there's a new beginning. Aren't you grateful that God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances? And God says, I'm going to renew my promises to her. You know, in the first century, if you were going to marry someone, you had a betrothal period. 
You know, Joseph and Mary, we read about that during Christmas time. And that was a betrothal period. And at the beginning of your betrothal, you would make a payment in order to secure that promise. And so you would make a payment of sorts. And what does God do to make a payment? It tells us, I will betroth to you, to you to me, how long? Forever. Forever. And he says, yes, I will betroth me, you to me, how? What's he going to pay in righteousness and judgment? Speaks of his protection he's going to provide in loving kindness and mercy. That's the word hesed, his loyal love, which is relentless and unconditional, the love of God. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. He makes a promise to her. Verse 21, I shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. What's going on there? Well, uh, each thing is giving an answer. If you go back to verse 22, at the end, you'll see Jezreel calls out and the earth answers with grain, with new wine, with oil. The earth calls out and the heavens They answer the earth, and who is the ultimate provider of all things? Who answers the heavens? It says, it shall come to pass in that day that I will answer. God's the provider. He provides prosperity. He provides peace. And then it says in verse uh, verse 23, then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. What did the second child name of Hosea was? Loruhama, no mercy, no love. And he says, I'm going to give her mercy again. Then I will say to those who are not my people, Loami, you are my people, and they shall say, You are my God. When you turn it to the New Testament, you have Paul quote this in Romans 9, and we also see Peter quote it when it's given in the context not just of the nation of Israel but to include Gentiles as well. Gentiles who are not God's people will be called God's people. Any Gentiles in the room, there's a reason for us to celebrate that the promises of God are not just fulfilled through Jesus Christ to benefit the Jewish people. The promises of God are fulfilled to benefit Gentiles as well. Dirty dogs like you and like me, we have a reason to give thanks to the Lord. What does this tell us about our God? Uh, three things. God's promised future restoration reminds us that his love is unconditional. Secondly, his future restoration reminds us that his love is relentless. He pursues us and he remains faithful to us even when we are not faithful. And thirdly, his future restoration promises remind us that his love is eternal it will go on forever and ever if you've trusted in christ as your savior and lord and your faith is genuine in him because your salvation is a sovereign work of god you can trust that he will hold on to you the reason you persevere in your faith is not because you are holding on to him but because he is holding on to you, like holding the hand of a little child crossing the street. The reason why you're able to cross safely in busy traffic is not because their grip is strong, but because your grip is strong. That's the grip of the Lord has on our heart. As you take time to reflect this evening on the love of God, we can't help but tell God, thank you.
If I could close with this question and we'll close tonight. How does God's redemption and restoration of an unfaithful people provide hope for people in your life who are far from God? When you hear about how God can take a people who seem to be so far lost that God declared to them, you're not my wife, I'm not your husband. What hope does that give you as you minister to the lost or prodigals who have been in the faith and have left? Anyone want to share a couple thoughts as we close? Hope, yes. There's hope there, absolutely. And because there's hope, there's a reason to share the gospel with them, to share our faith with them as God draws their heart to himself. Anything else? Amen. Well, let's hold on to that hope. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful tonight to reflect on your love that is unconditional, that is relentless, that is eternal. Father, thank you for loving us even in times when we've been unfaithful to you, not just this year or this past month, but today. Father, I pray, Lord, in this moment we can just be grateful that we would know that you are a holy God. Help us to be holy as you are holy. Let us taste the bitterness of sin so that we taste the sweetness of Christ. I pray, Lord, that our love for you would, would, would be matched by how worthy you truly are. I pray, Lord, that we would take time to reflect on, on your goodness, your faithfulness, your love on a daily basis, Father, and you would continue to draw our hearts closer to you. Father, as you give us hope to minister to the lost around us, those who have possibly turned their back on God, I pray, Lord, for the names of those who are on our hearts, that you would give us an opportunity to minister to them, that you would give us a desire and a heart and eagerness to go out and talk to them about the good news, to pray for them and to, to see the fruit that comes from that. Lord, as we leave this place, continue to wrap us in your love and the reminder of your goodness and faithfulness. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.